Luke 19, he, Jericho, and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and, he, and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry up and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in and be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone for anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since you are son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. We'll dismiss our school-aged kids to the back. And uh, they can follow. Looks like Mr. Brad back there, Miss Robin. While they're doing that, let me invite you, if you brought a copy of God's Word, to open it to uh, Luke chapter 19. Or if you have it on a device, that you would turn to Luke chapter 19. Um, I loved, uh, one, I didn't get to introduce Rupert and the guys, uh, our guest leading worship for us today, and they did a phenomenal job. Thanks, Rupert. They got here early today and uh, set up and went through the things. And um, It was amazing in that song, Waymaker. I'm so thankful that my parents raised me uh, in, you know, what we used to call uh, Sunday school. Now at, at, we, at Covenant, we call it equipping classes. Because as he was singing those words, Waymaker, my mind was filled uh, of all the times that God made a way where there didn't seem to be a way. I remember learning on the little flannel graph all, all the things. Um, the children of Israel against the Red Sea, against the Egyptian army, uh, <laughs> hungry in the desert, and God just kept making a way. And then we s- sang the refrain, even when I don't see it, you're working. Is that not true? In the life of David... Um, so many people, even though we didn't see God working, that he is working. And um, today I'm going to finish uh, off our little uh, series on seeking. We've been talking about seeking the heart of God, uh, seeking God together. And now we're going to talk about seeking the loss. And the passage that we're in, in Luke 19, um, makes it very clear that this is why Jesus came Verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So I'm entitling this message, Hide and Seek, because I feel like more often than not in our lives, um, we're hiding but not seeking. When we were, when we were younger, we used to play, uh, I'm the oldest of, of three, Leighton, 18 months younger than me, and then my sister Lydia couple years younger than him and so um, when we didn't want a little sister bothering us we would say hey let's play hide and seek Um, you go hide and then she would run off to hide and nobody would come to find her because we just wanted to play basketball Um, and I feel a little bit um, I feel judgment towards me right now you're saying you're saying you you guys did not do that at all Um, I feel a lot, you know, we've been through, man, a crazy season, and people have been hurting, and the church 
not specifically talking about our church, but also talking about our church. We've been focused on a lot of things that have no eternal consequence. And the world's been hurting, and we have the message of hope in the gospel. Yet a lot of our lives aren't laid out, aren't modeled after the way of Jesus that we are seeking the lost. So we start every year with this little vision series, and we go, uh, we talk about the, in the three directions that Jesus lived. We talk about the up, the in, and today we're going to talk about the out. And I love that Jesus did this. You know, of the hundreds of commands that came to Jesus, teacher of the law, and said, uh, Jesus, what is the most important command there is? And he said that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the others like it, like unto it, that you would love your neighbor as yourself. And just a while later, he was with his disciples in John 13, and he says, A new command I give to you, that you would love one another. As a matter of fact, your love for each other is going to be the main thing that attests to the genuineness of your faith. And so those three things, and so we kind of do a diagnostic test on us as a church every year as we start the new year, and we think about, okay, how is our love for the Lord? Are we pursuing in this up direction? Are we listening for God to speak to us? And what about our in relationships? Are we, are we digging deep on the end? Are we really loving each other? Are we living out the 41 one another's of Scripture to bear one another's burdens, to forgive one another, to love one another, to love one another, to love one another? Are we, are we really loving one another? And then this outward direction, what does it mean to invest in those who don't yet know the gospel? What does it mean to invite them to take a step of faith? A few years ago, I was at a church in the uh, high desert of California, and the church had grown exponentially uh, in just a few years. And uh, the pastor looked like the, probably the opposite of whatever you think a pastor of a 10,000-person uh, church looks like. He rolled up in uh, rainbow flip-flops and uh, Columbia fishing shirt and some shorts. And, uh, and as he talked, he was just so real and so genuine and so authentic I really, I really liked it. I was like, man, I like this guy. And there was about 10, 10 of us in the room, and he was investing in us. And he says, hey, let's, let's, let's start here. And he had a whiteboard up there. Let me just go around. And I just want you to tell me what is your kind of mission, vision statement? What are you all about as a church? And, and let me see if there's any way that I might be able to encourage you or help you, or maybe we can help each other. And it was my turn, and, uh, and, and I, was, I, I went first. And he said, okay, what about you? And I said, well, you know, our, we're spirit-led family on mission-making disciples. That's what our little mantra is, a spirit-led family up on, on mission, out, making disciples, investing in one another. That's what we're doing. This is, this is, who, we, this is who we are. And he says, well, I appreciate uh, that good theology. Luke, I hate to tell you that's never going to work. And I was like, what do, you, what do you mean? It's never, this is what Jesus did. He did the up and the in and the out. He's like, yeah, I know Jesus did it, and, um, but I just don't think you're going to be able to do it. And I said, well, pastor, you know, I disrespectfully disagree because, I, you know, I've been pastoring a church for three years, and um, I know all there is to know. And I didn't say that. I just said, you know what, it's working. He said, Luke, here's what I want you to do. And he gave me his personal phone number. So I want you to set an alarm, and I want you to call me in three years and tell me how it's working. And I was like, well, I'm going to show him. I'm going to show Pastor Tom. We're going up in and out. And he goes on to explain himself. And he said, here's what. If you give your people the option to go up, in, and out, they're only going to go in. They're just going to take the path of least resistance. Just like human nature is, it is our nature that we just turn inward. And what once was an outpost or a lighthouse of the gospel, if we're not careful, we just... We just slowly, slowly, slowly turn inward. 
a lot of churches are closing their doors. And I actually work with church planting and a lot of church planters. Uh, the group that we support, we were able to, to plant 60 churches last year, an incredible thing. And one of the trends we're seeing is these churches, these churches with this incredible history, 100 years, 120 years, 150 years, and they're dwindling down so small, and they're donating their building, which is such a kingdom thing to do, donating their building to a new church. And I sat with one of those pastors of this church. He had eight people left in his church. They had this beautiful facility um, just uh, south of Dallas, Texas last week. And we were talking about this very thing. He said, Luke, there was a time decades ago when every seat was filled in this house and people were coming to faith and we, would, we, would, we couldn't baptize them all on one, one week. It would take up the whole service. We would have to have multiple weeks of baptism. But somewhere along the way, this is what the pastor said, somewhere along the way, we quit reaching people. We made it about ourselves. And this is a real warning to us as a church. And it's certainly a warning that Jesus gives us in Luke 19.10 that we are to be about the Father's business. And you know what the mission of God was? It says it right here in verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I've come to realize that a lot of us if we're making some good strides in one area of our life, in one area of following Jesus, we tend to ignore the others. But our hope, right, as a faith family is to be mature, that we're going to grow into the fullness of God, as Ephesians talks about. And in order to do that, Ephesians says, we have to grow up in every way, not just the ways that we find interesting, not just the ways that we find easy. We've got to grow up like Christ in every way. One author says it this way, this really hit me this week as I was studying this. Approaches to formation, spiritual formation he's talking about, that focus only on those places where we are fairly well along can actually become a defense mechanism for avoiding awareness of those areas that are not yet formed in the image of Christ. The good parts of our discipleship can function as defense mechanisms to stop the rest of our discipleship. You see what she's saying? So we become like Christ, maybe in our generosity, maybe you're a good giver, you've got the gift of giving, and you give, and that's a discipline, and you've done it a long time, but because you give, you're not growing in the other areas. To use our directions, maybe, maybe you love the Bible, you love to communicate with God, you love to read and to pray, yet you don't want to do life with other people, and you don't want to reach out. And the point is, oftentimes, success in one area of our life as we follow Jesus, right, Gives us a, a, sense of, uh, a sense of arrogance almost. It's a defensiveness from growing in the other areas. But this, this shouldn't be because we want to be mature. We want to grow into the fullness of God. And as we talked about the up and the in and the outs, my prayer is today that God would really put his finger in your heart somewhere. He would speak to you as he does through his kindness and lead you to repentance and growth. Would you pray with me real quick before we jump in? Father God, as we look in your word today, would you speak to our hearts? God, thank you for your love. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, even now, that's leading us to truth. And I pray as we get into your word, God, speak to us. Speak to our hearts. Encourage us where we're weak and weary. Help us to see real hope again. Or do what you need to do in our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
This Luke 19 is an incredible text, and again, if you grew up uh, in the church, you probably learned this, uh, this song about Zacchaeus being a, a wee little man, and, and I remember that part, wee little man, as we would sing it, but I don't know if I remember, that's, that's not the point of the passage. The, the point of the passage is the heart of King Jesus for those who have not yet experienced walking with him in hope and forgiveness If you'll read with me, starting in verse 1. And he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he couldn't because he was small in nature or in stature. And so he ran ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came To the place, he looked up to him and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Now, a couple things just that we would get the context of what's happening in this picture. Jesus is actually headed to Jericho. I mean, Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. And this is towards the end of the life of Jesus. And as He's preparing to head to Jerusalem. He's going through Jericho. Now, Jericho was a bit of an oasis in the, in the desert. It was where uh, they had 10,000 of the, of the priests uh, had, a, had a place to stay there when they were serving the temple in Jerusalem, just a few miles from, from Jerusalem. But it was also the, I, I, maybe like L.A. or somewhere in Florida, it was the place that all the wealthy retreated during certain months, they would go to the oasis where they had the palm trees and they had their second homes. It was a really wealthy city. And Jesus is going to happen to be going through Jericho. And as he's going through Jericho, all the people that have status, of course, are thinking, man, I'm going to get some time with Jesus. Maybe there's the, you know, the, all the chief priests that may be gathered there. There's certainly the 10,000 priests that are there. Maybe there's the city leaders. Maybe there are those that are in charge. And yet Jesus is going through Jericho, and instead of meeting with them, he's diverting his attention and even his schedule to meet with Zacchaeus. We see a few things from this passage that Zacchaeus was. It says that, uh, that he was a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Now, the text doesn't go into how much he was probably hated, but you can infer it because when Jesus went to his house in verse 7, it says they all saw it and they grumbled. They murmured. He has gone to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. Of all these, of all these righteous people, Jesus has decided that he's going to eat dinner with Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus wasn't just a tax collector. It says he was a chief tax collector. And these weren't just equivalent to our IRS agents. They were traitors, really, guilty of treason. Because as Caesar was expanding his empire and building these immaculate cities, he only was able to do that by having huge armies. They would have kept the people in line and by exorbitant taxes. So historians tell us that basically Caesar would tax the people under his rule at least 50%. And in some places more. But they were too far removed to be able to gather that money. So they would go into a city, a little town, a village even, and they would look for someone 
who knew the people and knew about what they made. And to those people, he would, he would, he would convince them, hey, I'm going to give you a lot of money if you would work for us, if you would work for Rome. And, uh, and as a matter of fact, part of your payment can be anything that you want to add on top of what you're gathering for me, you can. And so that's what a tax collector would do. They would enforce this overwhelming tax, robbing people under the law. Again, historians say at least 50%. Sometimes these tax collectors would add an additional 40%. So these people working hard for their livelihood, working day to day, just to get enough uh, money to eat and to live, were being taxed 90%. So Zacchaeus was one of those. He was a homeboy that was a traitor to his people in order to work for oppressive Rome and then hike his taxes up to maybe even 90%. And again on that, he's not just a tax collector. Remember, Matthew was a tax collector, one of the disciples. You can imagine the friction that happened even in that little group. But It says Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. That means he was the one who was over all the others. He was the one that was setting up and enticing the others in the village, uh, you know, next to their village and saying, hey, we need somebody to collect taxes. Hey, as a matter of fact, you can collect, you know, up to 40% more than Rome needs, and you're going to have this lavish lifestyle. So needless to say, no one liked them. No one liked the tax collector. And he's a chief tax collector. And he's training all the others to do it. This is probably why, because if you imagine Jesus coming through, certainly the town had, had swollen in size as we're getting close to Passover and people are traveling. But Zacchaeus should have been able to just kind of maneuver his way to the front so that he could see. But he was so, he was so hated that no one's going to let him cut through. And it tells us he has got to climb a tree. A few things that I want us to know about Jesus as we see here. First, that Jesus was always aware of the spiritual condition of the people in his life. He was always aware of the spiritual condition of those around him. Sometimes we like to use the phrase that he owned the spiritual condition of his neighborhood. Of course, Jesus had no real neighborhood, no home. But everywhere he went, he seemed to just be so aware of the spiritual condition of the people around him, including Zacchaeus. As he goes to town, he's, he's aware of Zacchaeus. He takes time to notice him. And not just was he aware of the people, he never let the agenda of the day supersede the opportunity of the moment. If there was a spiritual opportunity, a chance to care for someone, a, a chance to share hope, a, a chance to encourage, a chance to call someone to repentance, Jesus interrupted his day to take advantage of it. As a matter of fact, you'll notice that most of Jesus' recorded ministry happens when Jesus was on the way to somewhere else. Along the way ministry, this is provided, I mean, I would say half of all the stories we have of Jesus interacting with someone, he's along the way to another place, yet he wasn't so focused on the to-do list that he missed the opportunity of the moment. Case in point here, he's passing through Jericho, as I said a moment ago. He's headed to Jerusalem. Chapter 17, 11 tells us that. He's, it's amazing that Jesus didn't feel rushed. The passage right before this one in the Gospel of Luke is the is the little kids coming to Jesus and the disciples saying, no, Jesus doesn't have time for you. And he rebukes them and says, let the children come to me. 
He's 10 days or so from the crucifixion. We're in the last days of Jesus. Palm Sunday and the start of Holy Week later on in this very chapter. 10 days left to live. The Savior of the world. Some very thick-headed, slow-learning disciples. So much that he's got to do. And yet he stops it all to make time for this guy. And not just a passing blessing either. He doesn't just put a little holy water on him or, you know, say a little prayer for him. You know what he does? He invites him to go to his house. He says, today we're going to your house. Does this work? Can I, after the service, just tell you I'm coming to your house? Who's, who's cooking fajitas? That's whose house we're going to go to. Jesus allowed ministry opportunities to determine his schedule, not the other way around. You ever feel like we've been, become such a slave to our schedule that we leave little to no room for the Holy Spirit to work? What if tomorrow you had this very same encounter, but you passed it because you had to get to work? Or you passed it because you had to go to the grocery store. Or you passed it because you just had an hour for lunch. In our fast-paced, so busy world, we pass so many opportunities. And I believe God is not looking for the most skillful. He's just looking for the available and the obedient. Third thing we see about Jesus is he intentionally established these relationships for spiritual purposes. He loved people enough to actively seek out relationships with them. Now, again, if we pan out a little bit and look at the the gospel of Luke as, as a letter, this is, this is a drum that the author, Luke, continually beats. There's this pattern in the book of Luke, and Luke's making this really strong point that Jesus intentionally established relationships for spiritual purposes, and he does it mostly with the people that the religious elite hated. Tax collectors are mentioned six times in the book of Luke, and every single time he mentions them positively. In Luke 7, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just. In chapter 15, the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And he paints this picture. But the Pharisees, the religious elite, and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Again, in chapter 18, he tells this parable of a, of a, of a Pharisee and a tax collector going into the temple. And the tax collector is just overcome with grief and repentance and beats his chest before God and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And all the while, the Pharisee, the religious person, goes in there and he loudly prays out to God, condemning the other man. God, I'm so glad I'm not like this man and yet that parable finishes in verse 14 he says I tell you this man went to his house justified the tax collector rather than the other one what is Jesus doing what is what is Luke pointing out it's only in Luke that you get the good Samaritan people that were hated by everybody and Jesus paints him as the hero of the story. It's only in Luke that you get the prodigal son, the story of rejection and grace. In the end, it's the self-righteous brother who's on the outside of the father's house. But the immoral but repentant brother is forgiven and welcomed back into the family. Only in Luke do you have this story of Zacchaeus emphasizing this monster, this basically terrorist whose life was gloriously changed by the gospel. And here's the pattern. Jesus spends most of his time with outcasts and outlaws, the last, the lost, and the least. 
and almost every interaction with them ends positively. It's interesting to me that the people who most dislike religion most love Jesus. And the people who most loved religion most hated Jesus. And in contrast, nearly every interaction with the respectable people of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious elite, nearly every encounter other than Nicodemus ends negatively. They walk away mad. They're gnashing their teeth at him. They're plotting to kill him. The rich young ruler walked away sad. In Luke 18, the Pharisee walked away unjustified. Why does Luke make that point? And how do we miss that? How do we miss modern-day followers of Jesus several thousand years later? How do we miss the heart of Jesus for the last, the lost, and the least? It's the socially unrespectable that Jesus spends his time with, the poor, the tax collectors, the Samaritans. It's the morally unrespectable people, the prostitutes, the Sinners, it's the physically unrespectable people, the blind and the lepers that have been cast out of the city. This pattern of Luke's gospel of putting together this idea again and again that the nice and affluent people are offended by Jesus and the nasty and outsiders are attracted to Jesus. Not only that, but Jesus intentionally pursues them. Zacchaeus. You come down, because we're going to go to your house today. Why is it here? The people who feel superior, who feel like they have it all together, the people who feel like God owes them something, those people are easily offended by the gospel. But those who are needy and desperate, those who've fallen on their faith, those are the ones that find the gospel, the good news, sweet. Unless you know you're a moral failure, you will want religion instead of the gospel. Because in religion, I'm in control. And I'm searching for God. And I'm searching for my life to be fulfilled. But in the gospel, you have no control. God is the one who has come to seek and to save that which was lost. In religion, I'm working hard to keep the rules so that I can prove my worth to God. But in the gospel, I'm lost and without hope. And even my good deeds are like filthy rags before him. I'm not looking for God, but God has come to find me. And friends, we should feel the weight of this text, especially in Bossier City. Jesus intentionally established relationships for spiritual purposes, but... Another thing we see about Jesus here is that he engaged people right where they were. Jesus didn't get offended by lost people acting lost. Instead, he met them right where they were. He didn't drop his standard, but he brought the light of righteousness to them, and he addressed them right where they were. Jesus has this incredible way of doing this, of exposing idols and leading them to repentance through his kindness. You know, he didn't run up to Zacchaeus and say, Zacchaeus, God is mad at you. As a matter of fact, he didn't, even, he didn't even mention his sin. At least the text doesn't record it. We see certainly that he got there some way. I mean, Zacchaeus had this radical change in his life. Think about the woman that's caught in adultery. 
And Jesus right there next to her, standing right there next to her. She's scantily clothed. She's been beaten certainly already, being dragged away as she was caught in the act. And Jesus says, friend, where are your accusers? And there weren't any. Or the demoniac who's cutting himself and screaming in a terror to everyone, and yet Jesus goes to him. Jesus certainly could have stayed away. He wasn't going there just to meet this guy, and yet he goes and spends time with him. Or the rich young ruler, how Jesus encountered him and was so kind to him. It says that even if you read that passage that Jesus saw him and he loved him. And even here was Zacchaeus. Notice how Jesus told How Jesus came to Zacchaeus and invited him to dinner. Notice, too, how Jesus told the rich young ruler he had to sell everything and Zacchaeus only had to get rid of half. Why is that? Because it's not about the money. The money was only the crutch. It was about their heart. It's about the heart. Jesus wasn't scared of their sin. He didn't. He just engaged them right where they were. He brought the light into dark places. Now, to be clear, I'm not asking you to rationalize sinful behavior as an attempt to connect with people. I used to tell this to the students all the time. God's not into missionary dating where you go pick the baddest boy there is in hopes that you're going to win him to Christ. That's not what we're, not what we're saying. But there was this intentional pursuit of Jesus to the last, the lost, and the least. Jesus' priority on earth was to seek and to save the lost. That's why he says he came. Look back at the text with me in verse 6. So he hurried down and came and received him joyfully and When they saw it, they all grumbled, the religious people. He has gone to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, only the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he is also since he also is a son of abraham for the son of man came to seek and save the lost you know the cool thing about this is that god's the one that does the seeking and the saving it wasn't zach's idea to have dinner with jesus he just wanted to get a glimpse of him we don't know exactly what's going on in his heart really at all zacchaeus may have done the climbing but Jesus did the seeking and in that day hospitality meant a lot to offer or accept this kind of invitation this kind of hospitality was basically to offer friendship Jesus didn't again approach Zacchaeus say Zacchaeus if you'll get your life together you go get your finances in order if you'll go get everything uh, taken care of then maybe I'll come over No, isn't it interesting that Jesus offered him the invitation first, the friendship first, then Zacchaeus radically changed his life. And this is often how salvation works. 
We say all the time, we have our, our community groups, our version of small groups, we call them missional communities. And we use that term missional because they're not just about the relationships in, they're really to be a, a light house, an outpost of the gospel. And we would love to see, our heart is to see a, an outpost of the gospel in a missional community in every neighborhood in Shreveport, Bossier. Wouldn't that be incredible? That no one has to go more than two or three minutes to be able to see and hear the gospel see a community really live it out because this is what we find most often people are attracted to gospel community people who really love each other and care for each other and work through their differences and forgive each other and bear each other's burdens that's attractive people who see the dignity and 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 the in the human being and the creation that they're bestowed upon them as the glory of God just a little lower than the angels can you imagine what's what we we see each other that way and we love each other and respect each other with a lot of times people are attracted to gospel community but before they're attracted to the actual gospel itself. And this is why Peter would later say, be ready to give an answer for the hope that's within you. Well, how would they even know about the hope that's within them? Because they're living countercultural, radically different lives. They were radically generous with their time and their talent and their money. They were radically generous with their relationships and their forgiveness. And they lived in such a way as a counterpoint to the way the world was living that everyone, Peter says, hey, hey, just be ready. Hey, when you live like this, you better be ready because people are going to ask you, man, are you crazy? Well, you, then you can step back and you can just tell them a little bit about the hope that you have in Jesus. In verse 9, it says, today, Jesus, today salvation has come to your house. How was that possible? Salvation had come to the house of Zacchaeus. Jesus doesn't, salvation was possible because Jesus showed up. Jesus doesn't just point towards salvation, Jesus is salvation. You can't save yourself, nothing you can do can bring salvation. Jesus invites us to come to him, to place our faith in him, to trust him in exchange for our sin and selfishness. He gives us his righteousness, his rightness to God, a restored relationship. And when we look at this, we see what the text says about Jesus. And then in light of who he is, we begin to understand everything else, namely this, that Jesus is offering the best life to us. His invitation is friendship, to know him as salvation. It's to conform our lives to him, to live the very best life that he's intended for us. And as we become part of his family, we begin to take on family traits. Jesus would say in John's gospel, just as I have been sent, now I am sending you. Well, what are you sending me to do? I'm sending you to seek and save the lost. But Jesus, isn't that, isn't that, isn't that the missionary's job? Isn't that the pastor's job? Friend, it's not. It's not my job because I'm a pastor. It's my job because I'm a follower of Jesus. And it's the call on your life too. What does this mean for us? It means that just as Jesus was always aware of the people in his life, their spiritual condition, we should be too. Wouldn't it be great if you had a little notepad or a little note file in your phone? where you were just praying for people and the spiritual condition of the people that you work with or the baristas at Starbucks or wherever you go or the people at the Circle K or your neighbors down the road or your coworker, 
that you just had a little journal and you're just praying for them every day, just praying that God would, would break through their hard heart, that he would give them a heart of flesh, that he would send someone, that he would open up a door of opportunity for even you just to brag on God in front of him, in front of them. Everyone mattered to Jesus. Do they matter to us? If not, we should really break our hearts and give. We should ask the Holy Spirit to break our hearts and give us his eyes and his heart for people. I was with a buddy of mine um, named Joel. And Joel lives up in the Pacific Northwest. And I was with him a couple weeks ago, and uh, it was great to get with, uh, anytime I get with Joel, it's great, because he is a grill barbecue master. Uh, he owns three Traeger grills, commercial for them, I guess. Um, but it's the best food I've ever eaten. So I'm with, I'm, with, I'm, with, uh, I'm with Joel, and I said, Joel, tell me what's happening in your life. And Joel just begins to talk about this, this guy named Dave. And he said about a year ago that God really convicted him of, um, of this very point, this, out, this outward seeking, seeking and saving the lost, pointing people to Jesus, inviting people to step across the line of faith, however you want to say it. He said, man, God just really convicted me about that. And, and I decided, you know what, I'm going to ask someone to step across the line of faith every opportunity I get. And that's an easier commitment to make than it is to actually live out. And he said, man, the very first week, my very first conversation, I told you a little bit of this before. I was with this guy named Dave. And Dave grew up a Jew and then became an atheist. And Joel kept inviting him to step across the line of faith, talking to him about what it means to follow God. And Joel kept pushing, I mean, Dave, Dave kept pushing back, no, I'm not ready, no, I'm not ready. And then at one point he was ready and he, and he took that step and this incredible story, and I, I talked about this some a little bit last week, and then Dave, just a few weeks after he came to Christ and started investing in their church, and his wife came to Christ, this incredible story, then Dave passed away of COVID, and his wife is still connected uh, in the church there with Joel. But I began talking to Joel about that, and Joel really just, he really just spoke to my heart, and he said, Luke, don't you think you could do that? Don't you think you could do it? Don't you think, you know, he knows of our church, You've, he's been here once before. He says, don't you think the people of covenant could do that? Couldn't they, just, couldn't they just invite people to step across the line of faith? I said, well, I'll certainly, I'll certainly ask them to do it. I'll certainly do it myself. And I've been, it's just a different lens that you begin to see all of life through. So just this last week, I had four of these encounters. And they were, they, one of them didn't go so well, but three of them went really well. There was this lady, uh, was a server at Saltgrass. And I was there with a buddy, and I just said, hey, uh, name, and she, she was real busy and late and didn't come to the table for a while, and she was so apologetic, and I was like, this is, I'm not here just to eat the steak. I'm here because I believe this might be a divine appointment, and there's Shelly right there, and I just began to be kind to her, and, and I just said, hey, you know, Shelly, we're, we're, me and my buddy here, we're about, to, we're about to pray for our meal. Is there anything that you, we could pray for you about? And she just began to weep. She said, you know, I was, I was wondering if God still saw me. I'm going through a crazy divorce. 
my two-year-old is not handling things very well, and my heart is just so broken. And I said, well, Shelly, can, can we just pray for you right now? We're in the middle of, we're in the middle of sawgrass. There's people everywhere. She didn't even want it to be discreet. Sometimes when you do this, they want it to be really quick. She got on her knees right there next to us, just big old crocodile tears coming down her face. And I was able to remind Shelly, Shelly, God sees you. He knows you. His heart is for you. He's got big plans for your life. And then the next day, I went to a barbecue place, and I met Roger. Roger came, and same story, he was there. See, it's just a little tweak in your mindset that I'm not here just to eat. I'm here, I'm here to be extension of the heart of God into the heart of others. And I met Roger, and we just just been talking with him, and I was done eating, and uh, wasn't one of those where you have service. Roger actually co on the co on the barbecue joint, and he's coming by the table, and he said, "Hey, hey, how was how was your thing?" I said, "Man, this is some of the best barbecue I've ever had. This is incredible." And I said, Can you "Tell me a little bit about this place." And he began to share a little bit more, and I saw the opening. He said, you know, I had a major, uh, had some major trauma in my life a couple years ago. And he just said it that quick, and then he moved on. And then the end of this, you know, barbecue's done. Roger's got other things to do. I said, Roger, you mentioned just a few minutes ago you had some, some trauma in your life. And I'm a, I'm a man of faith, and I believe that God is near the broken. And that he doesn't waste a tear, and he doesn't waste any pain. And Roger, can I just pray for you? that you would see God's purpose through the pain. And he said, well, a couple of years ago, just the trauma I'm talking about, my wife passed of cancer, and it has rocked my life. And I don't even know who I am anymore. And I feel like I, I prayed all the prayers, and I felt like God didn't answer them, and I feel like he's not holding up his end of the deal. I said, Roger, can we just, can I, would you mind if I just prayed for you right now that, if you would really feel the peace and grace of God really close. And that one day you'd begin to make sense of some of this. I just prayed for Roger right there. I don't really know if he stepped across the line of faith, if he's running from God. But I, I used that one moment just to extend the heart of God into the heart of Roger. Not, listen, I'm not, I've been silent way more than I've been vocal. But the world is growing increasingly dark. And we have the hope of the gospel church. How arrogant are we? How preoccupied are we? That we wouldn't take a second to alter our schedule, to listen for our cry for help, to bless people with our prayers, to invite them to step across the line of faith. Just as Jesus established relationships for spiritual purposes, church, so should we. It's so cool just for a week of this. I've got a few more stories and one that didn't go so well. Of what it's like when you just slow down and look through the lens of a missionary and we're all missionaries. Jesus never let his to-do list supersede the opportunity of the moment. And we should live with that kind of awareness. Some of you are great at what you do. You're architects and plumbers and teachers. and Stay-at-home moms. and All the things 
And there's a growing list of all the things that you have to do. But friends, don't miss that moment. I feel like they're all around us. Jesus engaged people right where they were, and so, so should we. He didn't get offended by the lost or lost people acting lost. Instead, he just met them right where they were. He didn't drop his standards. He just brought light into the darkness. And finally, Jesus' priority on earth was to seek and save the lost. And friend, let me ask you very clearly, what's yours? Yes, it's to glorify God through everything we do, but namely, Jesus said this is the mission. The Great Commission appears in all of the gospel accounts and in the book of Acts. And in every one, it's a command to go. To go, therefore, to make disciples and baptizing them, to go and take the gospel to the very ends of the earth, starting with where you're at now and to the very ends of the earth. The mission of Jesus was very clear. He said, this is why he came. Friends, what's your mission? Is your life lived just so that you would gather all the comforts of the world and make this as close to heaven as you possibly could? Is it to gain fame and popularity? Is it just to numb the difficulty of life? Is it to make it all about you or even all about your family? Is that what it's here? What, what really is our mission? You know, the only reason I believe as Christians that we're still here, because Jesus certainly could have just beamed us right up to heaven the moment that we stepped across the line of faith, but he left us here so that we could be his witnesses. So we could declare that we could brag on Jesus of what he's done in my life, he wants to do through my life and extend it even to other people. That's the hope of the gospel. And the church, right, is the vehicle in which the gospel is to spread to the earth. Make no mistake, we're not talking, the stuff we're talking about is not neat. It's not clean, it's not tidy, it's often very messy. Pushes you beyond your comfort zone. But imagine if the hundred or so people in this room made that declaration and they said every morning as they woke up, God, my life for your will today, wherever you're leading me, that's where I want to go. Lord, if there's somebody hurting, confused, questioning, would you, would, you send, would you help me bump into them today so that I could just tell them how much you love them? What would our world look like? Jesus Christ is the hope of the world, friends. Do you believe that? The church is the body of Christ on earth. The church is the fellowship of the believers. And as believers, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're to bring the hope of the world. That's what God expects us to do. It's what he has for us. That's part of his plan in our life. Is that we would be intercessors with one hand holding his and one hand holding those who have never found that hope. And I want to encourage you and challenge you every day to invest in people's lives who are far from God, to invite them to take a spiritual step. Sometimes that's a step to church. Sometimes that's a step to cross a line of faith and trust Jesus right then. Sometimes that's a step even over the own threshold of your own house to sit at your table, to hear their hurts and their story, and to tell them the best story. One of the greatest 
gifts of grace that God has given the church is the opportunity, as Paul says, like broken pots, we carry this valuable news of the gospel in broken vessels. We see in Zach's story, our story, we get a picture of what he did for us. Zacchaeus deserved to be despised, yet Jesus invited him into friendship, paying him the highest social compliment of the day that he wanted to eat with them. And those of you, if you've stepped across the line of faith, he's done the same thing for you. We deserve scorn, but God gave us grace. We deserve rejection, but God invited us into fellowship. Isaiah 51 says that he drank the cup of judgment so that we could get the cup of joy. Zacchaeus climbed a tree because he was despised and they wouldn't let him in. Just 10 days later, Jesus would die hanging on a tree. Deuteronomy 21 says, Cursed or despised is everyone who's hung on a tree. Do you see what happened there? Jesus traded place with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus got the warmth of fellowship because Jesus got the scorn of derision. Jesus got joy. I mean, Zacchaeus got the joy. Jesus got the pain. But we all, like sheep, have gone astray, the prophet says. We've turned every one of us to our own way. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And we're going to take communion here in a minute, but before we do that, I just want to just appeal to your heart. If you're, if you're in this room, and certainly you, there is in a room this size, and you've never stepped across the line of faith, what's, what's keeping you from doing that today, friend? It would be pastoral malpractice after a message like this not to invite you to take a step across the line of faith. Some of you, you maybe you've been religious a long time, like certainly Zacchaeus was. Grew up in a little Jewish town, probably a good little Jewish boy. But he didn't know Jesus. Not until that day. Maybe just showing up here is your sycamore tree. You've showed up here and you're just checking things out. You're just kicking the tires. Friend, I would appeal to you to take a step of faith today, to trust Jesus today. For the rest of us, and here that our believers, my encouragement today, my challenge today, friends, is just to open your eyes. To create margin in your schedule to share the love of God with someone this week. We're going to come to the table in just a minute. And remember the gospel over religion. As you come, would you remember mercy over sacrifice, people over agendas, and in the end, love over evil? I want you to get alone with God right where you are, and we're going to sing in just a minute and take communion. But would you just pray that prayer of surrender to him right now? Lord, my life for your will. My life for your will. Maybe there's some people, direct people come to your mind when you think about those that are lost. About five years ago, God seared into my mind three people. I've prayed for them every day since that day five years ago. 
people that don't know the, don't know the Lord, I've been praying. Maybe as you're still before the Lord right now, there's somebody that comes in your mind. And would you just bring that name before the Lord? As he places that as a burden on your heart, you lift it back up to him. Maybe it's a wayward child. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's wayward parents. I don't know. A friend, a coworker, a neighbor, even an acquaintance. Lord, will you forgive us for making this life about us? Lord, would you forgive us for not listening to the nudge of your Holy Spirit, for not creating time in our schedules to invite people to take a step closer to you? Lord, I'm so thankful that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. But this is not one of those gotcha sermons. This is just an appeal through your word that we would have a heart like yours. A heart for the last, the lost, and the least. God, I thank you for your grace. As we come to the table in just a minute, Lord, stir in our hearts what needs to be there. Conviction where there's sin. Encouragement where there's weariness. Healing where there's brokenness and hurt forgiveness Jesus we lift our prayers to you ask you to do incredible things in our heart and life it's in Jesus name that we pray amen take as long as you need to pray the communion tables are open you don't have to be a member of our church but you do have to be part of God's family here you just come and take the little cup and rip open the top there's the bread in there and the bottom there's the juice just take it as you get it. I'll be in the back if someone would like to pray with someone. And we'll sing in just a minute.